Section 31 of An Essay Concerning Human Understanding. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Silver. An Essay Concerning Human Understanding by John Locke. Chapter 23 of Our Complex Ideas of Substances. Part 2. 19. Spirits Capable of Motion. There is no reason why it should be thought strange that I make mobility belong to spirit. For having no other idea of motion, but change of distance with other beings that are considered as at rest, and finding that spirits, as well as bodies, cannot operate but where they are, and that spirits do operate at several times in several places, I cannot but attribute change of place to all finite spirits. For of the infinite spirit I speak not here. For my soul, being a real being as well as my body, is certainly as capable of changing distance with any other body or being as body itself, and so is capable of motion. And if a mathematician can consider a certain distance, or a change of that distance between two points, one may certainly conceive a distance and a change of distance between two spirits, and so conceive their motion, their approach or removal, one from another. 20. Proof of this. Everyone finds in himself that his soul can think, will, and operate on his body in the place where that is, but cannot operate on a body or in a place a hundred miles distant from it. Nobody can imagine that his soul can think or move a body at Oxford whilst he is in at London, and cannot but know that, being united to this body, it constantly changes place all the whole journey between Oxford and London, as the coach or horse does that carries him, and I think may be said to be truly all that while in motion. Or, if that will not be allowed to afford us a clear idea enough of its motion, its being separated from the body in death, I think, will. For to consider it as going out of the body or leaving it, and yet to have no idea of its motion, seems to me impossible. 21. God immovable because infinite. If it be said by any one that it cannot change place, because it hath none, for the spirits are not in loco but ubi, I suppose that way of talking will not now be of much weight to many, in an age that is not much disposed to admire or suffer themselves to be deceived by such unintelligible waves of speaking. But if any one thinks there is any sense in that distinction, and that it is applicable to our present purpose, I desire him to put it into intelligible English, and then from thence draw a reason to show that immaterial spirits are not capable of motion. Indeed, motion cannot be attributed to God, not because he is an immaterial, but because he is an infinite spirit. 22. Our complex idea of an immaterial spirit and our complex idea of body compared. Let us compare, then, our complex idea of an immaterial spirit with our complex idea of body, and see whether there be any more obscurity in one than in the other, and in which most. Our idea of body, as I think, is an extended solid substance capable of communicating motion by impulse. And our idea of soul, our idea of body, as I think, 
is an extended solid substance capable of communicating motion by impulse, and our idea of soul as an immaterial spirit is of a substance that thinks and has a power of exciting motion in body by willing or thought. These, I think, are our complex ideas of soul and body as contradistinguished. And now let us examine which has most obscurity in it and difficulty to be apprehended. I know that people whose thoughts are immersed in matter and have so subjected their minds to their senses that they seldom reflect on anything beyond them are apt to say they cannot comprehend a thinking thing which perhaps is true. But I affirm when they consider it well they can no more comprehend an extended thing. 23. Cohesion of solid parts and body as hard to be conceived as thinking in a soul. If anyone says he knows not what it is thinks in him, he means he knows not what the substance is of that thinking thing. No more, say I, knows he what the substance is of that solid thing. Further, if he says he knows not how he thinks, I answer, neither knows he how he is extended, how the solid parts of body are united or, or cohere together to make extension. For though the pressure of the particles of air may account for the cohesion of several parts of matter that are grosser than the particles of air, and have pores less than the corpuscles of air, yet the weight or pressure of the air will not explain, nor can be a cause of the coherence of the particles of air themselves. And if the pressure of the ether, or any subtler matter than the air, may unite and hold fast together the parts of a particle of air, as well as other bodies, yet it cannot make bonds for itself, and hold together the parts that make up every the least corpuscle of that materia subtilis, so that the hypothesis, how ingeniously soever explained, by showing that the parts of sensible bodies are held together by the pressure of other external insensible bodies, reaches not the parts of the ether itself, and by how much the more evident it proves that the parts of other bodies are held together by the external pressure of the ether, and can have no other conceivable cause of their cohesion and union, by so much the more it leaves us in the dark concerning the cohesion of the parts of the corpuscles of the ether itself, which we can neither conceive without parts, they being bodies, and divisible, nor yet how their parts cohere, they wanting that cause of cohesion which is given of the cohesion of the parts of all other bodies. 24. Not explained by an ambient fluid, but, in truth, the pressure of any ambient fluid, how great soever, can be no intelligible cause of the cohesion of the solid parts of matter. For, though such a pressure may hinder the avulsion of two polished superficies, one from another, in a line perpendicular to them, as in the experiment of two polished marbles, yet it can never in the least hinder the separation by a motion in a line parallel to those surfaces. Because the ambient fluid, having a full liberty to succeed in each point of space, deserted by a lateral motion, resists such a motion of bodies so joined, no more than it would resist the motion of that body were it on all sides environed by that fluid, and touched no other body. And therefore, if there were no other cause of cohesion, all parts of bodies must be easily separable by such a lateral sliding motion. For if the pressure of the ether be the adequate cause of cohesion, 
wherever that cause operates not, there can be no cohesion. And since it cannot operate against a lateral separation, as has been shown, therefore in every imaginary plane intersecting any mass of matter there could be no more cohesion than of two polished surfaces, which will always, notwithstanding any imaginable pressure of a fluid, easily slide one from another. So that perhaps, how clear an idea soever we think we have of the extension of body, which is nothing but the cohesion of solid parts, he that shall well consider it in his mind may have reason to conclude that it is as easy for him to have a clear idea how the soul thinks as how body is extended. For, since body is no further nor otherwise extended than by the union and cohesion of its solid parts, we shall very ill comprehend the extension of body, without understanding wherein consists the union and cohesion of its parts, which seems to me as incomprehensible as the manner of thinking, and how it is performed. We can as little understand how the parts cohere in extension as how our spirits perceive or move. 25. I allow it is usual for most people to wonder how any one should find a difficulty in what they think they every day observe. Do we not see, will they be ready to say, the parts of bodies stick firmly together? Is there anything more common? And what doubt can there be made of it? And the like, I say, concerning thinking and voluntary motion. Do we not every moment experiment it in ourselves, and therefore can it be doubted? The matter of fact is clear, I confess. But when we would a little nearer look into it, both in the one and the other, and can as little understand how the parts of body cohere as how we ourselves perceive or move. I would have any one intelligibly explain to me how the parts of gold or brass that but now in fusion were as loose from one another as the particles of water or the sands of an hourglass come in a few moments to be so united and adhere so strongly one to another that the utmost force of men's arms cannot separate them. A considering man will, I suppose, be here at a loss to satisfy his own or another man's understanding. 26. The cause of coherence of atoms in extended substances incomprehensible. The little bodies that compose that fluid we call water are so extremely small that I have never heard of anyone who, by a microscope, and yet I have heard of some that have magnified to 10,000, nay, to much above a hundred thousand times, pretended to perceive their distinct bulk, figure, or motion, and the particles of water are also so perfectly loose one from another that the least force sensibly separates them. Nay, if we consider their perpetual motion, we must allow them to have no cohesion one with another, and yet let but a sharp cold come, and they unite, they consolidate. These little atoms cohere and are not without great force separable. He that could find the bonds that tie these heaps of loose little bodies together so firmly, he that could make known the cement that makes them stick so fast one to another, would discover a great and yet unknown secret. And yet, when that was done, would he be far enough from making the extension of body, which is the cohesion of its solid parts, intelligible, till he could show wherein consisted the union, or consolidation of the parts of those bonds, or of that cement, or of the least particle of matter that exists, whereby it appears that this primary and supposed obvious quality of body will be found, when examined, 
to be as incomprehensible as anything belonging to our minds, and a solid extended substance as hard to be conceived as a thinking immaterial one, whatever difficulties some would raise against it. 27. The supposed pressure to explain cohesion is unintelligible. For, to extend our thoughts a little further, the pressure which is brought to explain the cohesion of bodies considered, as no doubt it is, finite, let any one send his contemplation to the extremities of the universe, and there see what conceivable hoops, what bond he can imagine to hold this mass of matter in so close a pressure together, from whence steel has its firmness, and the parts of a diamond their hardness and indissolubility. If matter be finite, it must have its extremes, and there must be something to hinder it from scattering asunder. If, to avoid this difficulty, any one will throw himself into the supposition and abyss of infinite matter, let him consider what light he thereby brings to the cohesion of body, and whether he be ever the nearer making it intelligible, by resolving it into a supposition the most absurd and most incomprehensible of all other. So far is our extension of body, which is nothing but the cohesion of solid parts, from being clearer or more distinct when we would inquire into the nature, cause, or manner of it, than the idea of thinking. 28. Communication of motion by impulse, or by thought, equally unintelligible. Another idea we have of body is the power of communication of motion by impulse, and of our souls, the power of exciting motion by thought. These ideas, the one of body, the other of our minds, every day's experience clearly furnishes us with. But if here again we inquire how this is done, we are equally in the dark. For, in the communication of motion by impulse, wherein as much motion is lost to one body as is got to the other, which is the ordinariest case, we can have no other conception, but of the passing of motion out of one body into another, which, I think, is as obscure and inconceivable as how our minds move or stop our bodies by thought, which we every moment find they do. The increase of motion by impulse, which is observed or believed sometimes to happen, is yet harder to be understood. We have by daily experience clear evidence of motion produced by both impulse and by thought, but the manner how hardly comes within our comprehension. We are equally at a loss in both. So that, however we consider motion and its communication, either from body or spirit, the idea which belongs to spirit is at least as clear as that which belongs to body. And if we consider the active power of moving, or, as I might call it, motivity, it is much clearer in spirit than body. Since two bodies, placed by one another at rest, will never afford us the idea of a power in the one to move the other but by a borrowed motion. Whereas, the mind every day affords us ideas of an active power of moving of bodies, and therefore it is worth our consideration whether active power be not the proper attribute of spirits and passive power of matter. Hence may be conjectured that created spirits are not totally separate from matter because they are both active and passive. Pure spirit, viz. God, is only active, Pure matter is only passive. Those beings that are both active and passive, we may judge to partake of both. But be that as it will, I think, we have as many and as clear ideas belonging to spirit as we have belonging to body, the substance of each being equally unknown to us. 
and the idea of thinking in spirit as clear as of extension in body, and the communication of motion by thought, which we attribute to spirit, is as evident as that by impulse, which we ascribe to body. Constant experience makes us sensible of both these, though our narrow understandings can comprehend neither. For when the mind would look beyond those original ideas we have from sensation or reflection, and penetrate into their causes and manner of production, we still find it discovers nothing but its own short-sightedness. 29. Summary. To conclude, sensation convinces us that there are solid extended substances, and reflection that there are thinking ones. Experience assures us of the existence of such beings, and that the one hath the power to move body by impulse, the other by thought. This we cannot doubt of. Experience, I say, every moment furnishes us with the clear ideas both of the one and the other. But beyond these ideas, as received from their proper sources, our faculties will not reach. If we would inquire further into their nature, causes, and manner, we perceive not the nature of extension clearer than we do of thinking. If we would explain them any further, one is as easy as the other, and there is no more difficulty to conceive how a substance we know not should, by thought, set body into motion, than how a substance we know not should, by impulse, set body into motion. So that we are no more able to discover wherein the ideas belonging to body consist than those belonging to spirit. From whence it seems probable to me that the simple ideas we receive from sensation and reflection are the boundaries of our thoughts, beyond which the mind, whatever efforts it would make, is not able to advance one jot, nor can it make any discoveries when it would pry into the nature and hidden causes of those ideas. 30. Our idea of spirit and our idea of body compared. So that, in short, the idea we have of spirit compared with the idea we have of body stands thus. The substance of spirits is unknown to us, and so is the substance of body equally unknown to us. Two primary qualities or properties of body, viz. solid coherent parts and impulse, we have distinct clear ideas of. So likewise we know and have distinct clear ideas of two primary qualities or properties of spirit, viz. thinking and a power of action, i.e., a power of beginning or stopping several thoughts or motions. We have also the ideas of several qualities inherent in bodies, and have the clear distinct ideas of them, which qualities are but the various modifications of the extension of cohering solid parts, and their motion. We have likewise the ideas of the several modes of thinking, viz., believing, doubting, intending, fearing, hoping all which are but the several modes of thinking. We have also the ideas of willing and moving the body consequent to it, and with the body itself too, for, as has been shown, spirit is capable of motion. 31. The notion of spirit involves no more difficulty in it than that of body. Lastly, if this notion of immaterial spirit may have, perhaps, some difficulties in it not easily to be explained, we have therefore no more reason to deny or doubt the existence of such spirits than we have to deny or doubt the existence of body, because the notion of body is cumbered with some difficulties very hard 
and perhaps impossible to be explained or understood by us. For I would fain have instanced anything in our notion of spirit more perplexed or nearer a contradiction than the very notion of body includes in it. The divisibility in infinitum of any finite extension involving us, whether we grant or deny it, in consequences impossible to be explicated or made in our apprehensions consistent, consequences that carry greater difficulty and more apparent absurdity than anything can follow from the notion of an immaterial knowing substance. 32. We know nothing of things beyond our simple ideas of them, which we are not at all to wonder at, since we having but some few superficial ideas of things, discovered to us only by the senses from without, or by the mind, reflecting on what it experiments in itself within, have no knowledge beyond that, much less of the internal constitution and true nature of things, being destitute of faculties to attain it. And therefore, experimenting and discovering in ourselves knowledge, and the power of voluntary motion, as certainly as we experiment or discover in things without us, the cohesion and separation of solid parts, which is the extension and motion of bodies, we have as much reason to be satisfied with our notion of immaterial spirit as with our notion of body, and the existence of the one as well as the other. For it being no more a contradiction that thinking should exist separate and independent from solidity, than it is a contradiction that solidity should exist separate and independent from thinking, they being both but simple ideas, independent one from another, and having as clear and distinct ideas in us of thinking as of solidity, I know not why we may not as well allow a thinking thing without solidity, i.e. immaterial, to exist as a solid thing without thinking, i.e. matter, to exist. Especially since it is not harder to conceive how thinking should exist without matter than how matter should think. For whensoever we would proceed beyond these simple ideas we have from sensation and reflection, and dive further into the nature of things, we fall presently into darkness and obscurity, perplexedness and difficulties, and can discover nothing further but our own blindness and ignorance. But whichever of these complex ideas be clearest, that of body or immaterial spirit, this is evident, that the simple ideas that make them up are no other than what we have received from sensation or reflection, and so is it of all our other ideas of substances, even of God himself. 33. Our Complex Idea of God For if we examine the idea we have of the incomprehensible supreme being, we shall find that we come by it the same way, and that the complex ideas we have both of God and separate spirits are made of the simple ideas we receive from reflection, e.g. having, from what we experiment in ourselves, got the ideas of existence and duration, of knowledge and power, of pleasure and happiness, and of several other qualities and powers which it is better to have than to be without. When we would frame an idea the most suitable we can to the Supreme Being, we enlarge every one of these with our idea of infinity, and so putting them together make our complex idea of God. For that the mind has such a power of enlarging some of its ideas received from sensation and reflection has been already shown. 34. Our complex idea of God as infinite. If I find that I know 
some few things, and some of them, or all, perhaps imperfectly, I can frame an idea of knowing twice as many, which I can double again as often as I can add to number, and thus enlarge my idea of knowledge, by extending its comprehension to all things existing or possible. The same also I can do of knowing them more perfectly, i.e., all their qualities, powers, causes, consequences, and relations, etc., till all be perfectly known that is in them, or can any way relate to them, and thus frame the idea of infinite or boundless knowledge. The same may also be done of power, till we come to that we call infinite, and also of the duration of existence, without beginning or end, and so frame the idea of an eternal being. The degrees or extent wherein we ascribe existence, power, wisdom, and all other perfections, which we can have any ideas of, to that sovereign being, which we call God, being all boundless and infinite, we frame the best idea of him our minds are capable of. All which is done, I say, by enlarging those simple ideas we have taken from the operations of our own minds, by reflection, or by our senses, from exterior things, to that vastness to which infinity can extend them. 35. God in his own essence incognizable. For it is infinity which, joined to our ideas of existence, power, knowledge, etc., makes that complex idea whereby we represent to ourselves the best we can the supreme being. For, though in his own essence, which certainly we do not know, not knowing the real essence of a pebble or a fly or of our own selves, God be simple and uncompounded. Yet I think I may say we have no other idea of him but a complex one of existence, knowledge, power, happiness, etc., infinite and eternal, which are all distinct ideas, and some of them, being relative, are again compounded of others, all which being, as has been shown, originally got from sensation and reflection, go to make up the idea or notion we have of God. 36. No ideas in our complex ideas of spirits, but those got from sensation or reflection. This further is to be observed, that there is no idea we attribute to God, abating infinity, which is not also a part of our complex idea of other spirits, because, being capable of no other simple ideas belonging to anything but body, but those which by reflection we receive from the operation of our own minds, we can attribute to spirits no other but what we receive from thence. And all the difference we can put between them in our contemplation of spirits is only in the several extents and degrees of their knowledge, power, duration, happiness, etc. For that in our ideas, as well of spirits as of other things, we are restrained to those we receive from sensation and reflection, is evident from hence, that, in our ideas of spirits, how much soever advanced in perfection beyond those of bodies, even to that of infinite, we cannot yet have any idea of the manner wherein they discover their thoughts one to another, though we must necessarily conclude that separate spirits, which are beings that have perfecter knowledge and greater happiness than we, must needs have also a perfecter way of communicating their thoughts than we have, who are fain to make use of corporeal signs and particular sounds, which are therefore of most general use as being the best and quickest we are capable of. But of immediate communication 
having no experiment in ourselves, and consequently no notion of it at all, we have no idea how spirits, which use not words, can with quickness, or much less how spirits, that have no bodies, can be masters of their own thoughts, and communicate or conceal them at pleasure, though we cannot but necessarily suppose they have such a power. 37. Recapitulation. And thus we have seen what kind of ideas we have of substances of all kinds, wherein they consist, and how we came by them. From whence, I think, it is very evident, first, that all our ideas of the several sorts of substances are nothing but collections of simple ideas, with a supposition of something to which they belong, and in which they subsist, though of this supposed something we have no clear distinct idea at all. Secondly, that all the simple ideas that thus united in one common substratum make up our complex ideas of several sorts of substances are no other but such as we have received from sensation or reflection, so that even in those which we think we are most intimately acquainted with, and that come nearest the comprehension of our most enlarged conceptions, we cannot go beyond those simple ideas. And even in those which seem most remote from all we have to do with, and do infinitely surpass anything we can perceive in ourselves by reflection, or discover by sensation in other things, we can attain to nothing but those simple ideas, which we originally received from sensation or reflection, as is evident in the complex ideas we have of angels, and particularly of God himself. Thirdly, that most of the simple ideas that make up our complex ideas of substances, when truly considered, are only powers, however we are apt to take them for positive qualities, e.g., the greatest part of the ideas that make our complex idea of gold are yellowness, great weight, ductility, fusibility, and solubility in aqua regia, etc., all united together in an unknown substratum, all which ideas are nothing else but so many relations to other substances, and are not really in the gold, considered barely in itself, though they depend on those real and primary qualities of its internal constitution, whereby it has a fitness differently to operate, and be operated on by several other substances. End of section 31